Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. On today's episode, I'm debriefing a dear friend, co-host, and industry thought leader as he returns from a big international event. That's right, the Global Upstate Conference on International Business and Foreign Affairs was held this week, and it was presented by the World Affairs Council Upstate and hosted by our friends at Furman University, home of the Paladins, and the University of South Carolina Upstate, which I'm going to have to look up their their nickname. But we're going to dive right in. I want to welcome in, of course, our featured guest. You know him well by now, Mr. Greg White, my co-host of Supply Chain Now, where he serves as chief industry adjutant and is constantly challenging the status quo. Gregory, how are we doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's funny you mentioned that. Somebody walked up to me and said, uh, you know, at the conference and said, hey, I'd love for you to speak to my group. You're a disruptor. And I went, oh, is it that obvious? I love that. <laughs> they, they know you well. Yeah, as soon as I open my mouth, I guess. <laughs> so I am, I am looking up the USC Upstate mascot. Yeah. And that is going to be... I don't see a mascot. Well, that you know they're a branch campus, so they may not have Spartans. Oh, they are Spartans. T-shirts. USC okay. Upstate Spartans, Greg. So basically, the Spartanburg Spartans, because that's where USC ah, Upstate is located. That yeah. is right, man. Yeah. It's trivia, uh, trivia. So, folks, uh, you're going to be asked at some point in some really cool hole in the wall bar as you're playing trivia one day. Hey, who knows for a hundred dollars? Who knows the mascot of the USC Upstate uh, uh, University? Spartans, there's your answer. So, hey, yeah. uh, big thanks Always to Always bringing value. That's right. <laughs> so, before we get into the key takeaways, our, we've heard a lot of, of feedback already. Uh, I couldn't make the conference, but you and, of course, your partner in crime, at least for this past week, Kevin L. Jackson, which yeah. hosts our Digital Transformers series here at Supply Chain Now, who Greg is helping to power more transformational tomorrows. You and Kevin were a hit, Greg. I guess so. I mean, I, I think, you know, Kevin's, uh, for all of everyone who knows us, they must know Kevin's bio by now. It, but when you hear it pronounced in the physical presence of Kevin, and it, it is so very impressive, the Naval Academy, three degrees, you know, worked with uh, military foreign governments, NASA. our government, right? Just in, in, he's an adjunct professor, all, all sorts of things that are just so impressive. And his points of view are really, really powerful. So I got to experience that firsthand on a couple of different panels where we were both on. Now, Kevin has sent me a wire. He says that I cannot ask you anything about your time together. There was evidently some top secret activities. So uh, we'll circle back on a, a future uh, buzz edition. But I do, Greg, before we get into key takeaways, Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how much time you spent there in the upstate of South Carolina, which listeners, if you think of uh, Clemson and Greenville and Spartanburg, kind of that northeastern portion of uh, South Carolina is 
generally spoke uh, uh, referred to as the upstate. So, Greg, any observations, the food, the people, the, the landscape? Uh, all of it. Uh, first of all, it, it's 12 counties in kind of the northern section of, of South Carolina that they consider the upstate. Uh, I did notice and observe that everyone was like, what do they call the rest of it? I, know, I said, I know what they call, I know they call some of it the low country. Right. But I'm not sure there's actually a formal term for downstate or other parts. The Midlands. The, state. the Midlands. The oh, Midlands. the Midlands. Oh, you, that's right. You're a South Carolina native, so you know these things. From Aiken, one of the 46 counties that make up South Carolina. But you know what, Greg? I messed up. I said Northeast. It is a Northwest corner. Yeah, of of South Carolina. So no, well, it's strange people. because of South Carolina's shape. It's almost all corners, right? <laughs> it's effectively a triangle with a right. round top. But yeah, it's and and it was it was beautiful. And and actually, I have been to Furman University before. Actually, I've been to Greenville and Spartanburg before. You know, I'm a big BMW fan, and they That's have right. a driving experience up there. But I'm also I'm also a Wichita State fan, and and. The last time Wichita State was in the NCAA tournament, we played the University of Clemson. Sorry, we whooped them at Furman University. So it Clint was. Out. So I, I have been to that campus before, to almost the very spot where they held the conference. So yes, uh, which I remember that game. I remember you giving me a hard time, but it was well <laughs> deserved because Wichita State was a great team that year. Clemson University, so CU, Clemson University. Uh, is what uh, from basketball we're used to a series of woes here lately. I got a couple of bright spots, a couple of bright yeah, spots. That was a very good team that year. Yes. The Clemson team was a very good team. Afraid to play them, frankly. It just kind of went our way. So, well, so let so did you any, you know, we got to talk about food just for a second. Yeah, did you, sure. Did you eat any local cuisine that uh, comes to mind? I can't, I cannot verify that this was local, but. There's a famous steak restaurant in Charleston's called Charleston called Halls, yeah. and there is also one in uh, downtown Greenville. Okay, and so that's pr- that's probably as much as I can tell you since Kevin sent you a note. But uh, we did partake in a, a steak, which I'd like to thank you for, Scott, because <laughs> that was part of our expenses, uh, <laughs> and it was delicious. And the downtown area of Greenville has been apparently fairly recently revitalized, which, by the way, used to be the home of Furman University and the original tower from the original campus still stands down there on the Reedy River. And, um, and it was beautiful down there. We did not get to stay much. Our, you know, we had an early call every morning. Um, and of course, you know, Ke- Kevin is a, he's a military guy. So, you know, early to bed and early to rise, all of that. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> But yeah, it, it was beautiful, and I got to tell you, I was this. This was striking to me. I heard some statistics from a group called One Spartanburg, okay, uh, Inc., which is the confluence of their Chamber of Commerce, their tourism organization, and one more uh, uh, economic development organization. Instead of having three, they've combined them all in one, which gives them three different perspectives. A genius move, in my part. I mean, fr- I mean, not on my part, a genius move from my point of view, uh, because it does create efficiency and and it also gives them a multitude of viewpoints when courting new companies to come to the upstate, of which there are dozens and dozens. BMW being the most famous, right? But Bosch, Michelin, Bridgestone, other and and I believe around sixty five other 
companies that are located in the upstate from 35 different countries. Fascinating. So that was fascinating. Yeah. You know, I had to say, I mean, I literally had to say to somebody, I turned to Ben Cubitt from Transplace and said, that's, that's not the Greenville that I used to know. Right. So it's really, really interesting. Greenville and Spartanburg, you know, uh, and, and now Greer, is, which is a little ta- town just east of Spartanburg, yep. uh, which has grown by 300% in the last 10 years from 10,000 to 40,000 residents. But, you know, as the head, Alan Smith, right? as Alan Smith of One Spartanburg was talking about all of the numbers, they were just amazing and, and you know, really interesting to think of the Greenville-Spartanburg Metroplex as yep. an area that is growing in such incredible influence. But at the same time, when you uh, think about the people from Upstate International, Rob Rowan, uh, Alex Akuli and yep. Brianna, whose last name I'm afraid escaped me from AFL. I do know that. When you think about the work that those people, non-governmental organizations, as well as the governments have put in, it is to be expected, I suppose, because they have such a great group of quality international people who are working on improving what is now all of their homes. Some of them from other states, some of, many of them from other countries. Yeah. And some of them from right there at home. In fact, the mayor of Spartanburg, Jerome Rice, my newest favorite mayor, wore a blazer and a polo shirt and was from, uh, you know, the northern end of, of town, yeah. um, a lifer, and had come from being a neighborhood kid to, to being a city council person to facilitating the building that we actually did this in. They call it the George, which is the George Dean Business and Economics College. Wow. Okay. Um, But first of all, the George, I mean, what a cool name. Go to the George and make a left, right? (laughs) I just thought that was great. But anyway, uh, Mayor Rice was a great facilitator and a couple of of other uh, local political leaders were great hosts for us there as well. All right. So, man, you were taking copious notes. I feel like I was there now. Not, not a one. You know, I never take notes, but that's how impactful it was. Clearly. Scott. I mean, it was really that impactful. I think maybe because, you know, in my ignorance, so unexpected for, you know, I mean, really, if, uh, our fans around the world, who thinks of the upstate, who even knows what the upstate is of South Carolina I was truly impressed and surprised, and at the same time, in hearing from the quality persons that we all heard from, thinking, why am I surprised, and why haven't I uh, thought about this before? So, mm. Well, you know, uh, as you probably know better than I, maybe, because uh, since you are a BMW enthusiast, when the late, great Governor Carol Campbell, one of his um, biggest legacies was recruiting that BMW uh, plant to South Carolina. I want to say it was the late eighties, could have been the early nineties, but regardless, that was a big, that was kind of like George, uh, Georgia got me thinking the George. Now that was kind of like Georgia getting landed in Kia. You know, Kia changed, not just the region, it really changed the state. Well, very similar predated by a few years was the BMW investment in the upstate of South Carolina. So who knows? We'll have to get the full story in a later episode one last question before we get some, yes, to some of your um, your big panel discussions and sidebar conversations and key takeaways. I thought, you know, if you're a House of Cards fan, and I don't know if you're, I don't know if we were talking oh, about yeah. this. 
we, we watched it all. That final season was kind of, yeah. But I never got there. After Kevin Spacey was off, I never went back, but I've always felt like I should. So no spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. Okay. But season three, uh, I'm sorry, chapter three of House of Cards, they featured the peachoid. They didn't call it that on, on the show, but yeah. it's in Gaffney. It's like a peach. The big peach. Yeah. The big the water peach tower. is what... Yeah, that's that's what I thought. I just pulled it up on Wiki on Wikipedia, and they call it the Peachoid or the Peach or Mister Peach or the Moon uh, over Gaffney. Well, wow. interesting bunch of interesting names. Did you pass by that? No, that is uh, north of where where I was, as I recall, and between uh, between uh, Greenville and Spartanburg, I took side roads, uh, dark and in the rain. You know, nothing like <laughs> driving on windy. Dark road, unlit roads in the rain, um, to to get you to to drive the appropriate speed, and mm-hmm. and I did. Well, I that is good. I know how that must sound crazy, but I actually did. <laughs> well, a little trivia again. Uh, Frank Underwood, who is Kevin Spacey's character in House of Cards, it all started with he was from Gaffney, South right. Carolina, and you know fictionally in the series. So, and that's where the Peachoid or the Big Peach, whatever your favorite nickname is. Uh, is is appears in an episode or in that series. So uh, all of that, be that as it may, be that as it may, Greg. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Uh, yeah, that was three heavy heavy duty days. You and I have had a chance to debrief a little bit um, before your appearance here. What what a, what are a couple of things that are really sticking with you after three days of uh, international discussions? Well, so this was. International affairs and international business. The two things that really stood out to me were this, the juxtaposition or confluence or whatever you want to call it of international affairs and international business. If they aren't obvious to everyone or weren't obvious to everyone before, they should be obvious now. Um, And I expected that, you know, you and I talked a little bit about that. And when we were talking about the conference on some of the shows leading up to it, we talked about how exciting we thought that was would be, but it was much more impactful than I ever could have known. It, you know, uh, I sat down with uh, a leader, Ke- uh, Kevin Cassidy from the International Labor Organization, which is a, an organization, obviously, that talk, that represents labor around the world. And his discussion and the international perspective that he had was truly impressive and really made me think about supply chain's impact on that. And and another one of our fellow panelists was um, Bill Gifford, who is the head, chair, president, CEO, whatever it is, of the World Affairs Councils of America, the parent organization to Rob Rowan and his organization, the World Affairs Council of the Upstate or Upstate World Affairs Council, I believe. So had just got back from Doha, an international forum on business and world affairs with some world leaders there and certainly, um, you know, powerful influencers and business persons from all over the world. So really quick, Greg, because based on what you're sharing here and based on our previous couple of conversations and, and Kevin's feedback, the mix of the quality of the attendees and the panelists and just the uh, the perspective that was represented by that was a big part of the value of the conversations, would you say? Huge. I mean, Bill himself is, is an incredible influencer, lives in D.C., works with the government, 
David Cassidy as well. We had ambassadors and former ambassadors and consuls general from many countries around the world. We had a three-star Air Force general from Denmark who is in charge of CENTCOM's uh, Central Task Force, which is 45 countries who are jointly combating terrorism around the world, who've joined the United States since 9-11 to battle terrorism around the world. So we talked about not just not just foreign affairs as diplomacy, we talked about foreign affairs as things like migration, labor, actual, uh, the possibility of conflict. You know, where are we with Afghanistan now? What, what are the military, what is the potential military impact in the South China Sea of what, what China and the U.S. are doing constantly sort of rubbing elbows, right? Agitating one another there. Right. The recent... Uh, the recent play for attention from Rocket Man, from uh, Kim Jong Un, who launched yet another missile into the into the uh, Straits of something near Japan. So he's not forgotten. While Russia, China, and Ukraine take take center stage, um, we talked a lot about um, things like that, the tactical and strategic aspects of military operations, and and the tactics that some of these countries are undertaking, as well as the social impact and the diplomatic impact and the economic impact. And that's just the first point is the confluence of all these things, Scott. So the second thing that I really observed was supply chain in every single discussion, every single discussion that we had, people who knew nothing about supply chain, people who had never even heard of supply chain two years ago, people who admitted when I asked, uh, the audience, their eyes glazed over whenever the topic of supply chain was brought up prior to 2020. Um, now it's in the forefront of everyone's mind. And even I, you know, having been in supply chain and, and you and I have, and others have advocated for supply chain to have this seat at the table. Even I was uh, taken aback as I realized the realization that people had had over the last couple of years. And the breadth of impact of supply chain on diplomacy, on economic policy, social policies, um, military action and policies, right? right? So it, really quick, speaking of that, you know, we talked months ago, and I have to go back and find the show, but you and I were talking about, uh, I think it was a prediction show or something, maybe at the end of 2021, and we are talking about 2022, and you and I both were talking about, folks, this is uh, largely, I mean, there's, there's lots of, there's still regional conflicts and, and that kind of stuff, but largely, you know, there's no large, uh, massive scale invasion or war or conflict. And so all of these challenges in supply chain, you know, didn't have to worry about that. Well, welcome 2022. And, and we're starting to see, you know, and, and we're trying and hopefully, no, number one, hopefully not only is the blatant Russian uh, an atrocious aggression, Russian aggression in Ukraine. Hopefully, it comes to a stop. But also, we hope, hope it, 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 it uh, cooler heads prevail and we're able to contain it. But but just think, all those places you just mentioned, of course, the South China Sea, which is not just China. To your point, you've got North Korea rattling some sabers because mm-hmm. of lack of attention. But just Taiwan has, which I found out at this conference, Taiwan has greatly increased their 
defense budget because mm. of this, because they see they see that China is using Russia as somewhat of a crash test dummy to figure out how the world will respond to this kind of aggression and de- probably determining their actions in Taiwan based on how the world responds and the impact that it has on Russia. Well, with all of that, and I don't say this lightly, but gosh, if we thought, I mean, given all the potentials, if we thought it was challenging, you know, let's kind of hold our breath a bit over the next few months uh, or, or maybe, I mean, longer than that, clearly, but um, you know, cause it could be, it could go from the, what's that from the, from the skillet to the fire? Is that the From phrase? From the frying pan into the fire, yeah. Thank you very much. That's an old uh, schoolhouse rock thing. Is right? it? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. <laughs> well, the weight of the conversations, Greg, I mean, you're always a deep thinker anyway, but man, the, the weight and the gravity and the um, truly the global nature and, and, and purview and positioning of, of these discussions, man, it feels palpable based on kind of what you're bringing to the audience here. What else What else still sticks with you? Well, the, the, you know, you mentioned hope and, you know, all of that around what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine. Let me assure you, none of these people, none of the diplomats or military leaders, they weren't hoping at all. They were planning. They were creating uh, provisional schemes. They were uh, predicting, estimating. They were some, Bill Gifford for one, was vocally and loudly uh, protesting and uh, and I mean this is a man with a significant voice by the way loudly protesting and and decrying what what Putin is doing in in Ukraine but the interesting thing is that while we foreign affairs amateurs and observers while we sit and hope and think and 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 worry many of the people that were at this conference are taking some sort of action either diplomatic or diplomatic preparing for military or military consulting with diplomatic or overt or covert action in regard to this. So there is so much going on behind the scenes of diplomacy and they are deeply, deeply intellectual people. Um, I mean, if I have rarely felt outclassed, not that I'm a genius, but I have rarely felt outclassed mostly because I, stay in my lane. But I was a bit out of my lane, I must confess, at, at, you know, as regards foreign affairs. But I felt completely outclassed by the likes of Bill Gifford and Kevin Cassidy and others there, uh, as we talked about. It. Uh, General Henrik Larsen the, uh, from Denmark and CENTCOM. So we're transparent bunch. Foreign affairs, it's not my bag. I, right. I think you're saying it's not your bag either. Yeah. And we're, it's good to know that these pros that know how to navigate through these times and hopefully help cooler heads prevail are at work. I'll tell you, Greg, a few weeks ago, uh, not take us off the subject, but uh, a movie you got to see if you haven't already uh, on Netflix, there's this movie called Munich, Munich, the edge of war. Hmm. And it's based on a true story. Have you seen, have you seen this? I haven't, but I, I bet I know what it's about. Yeah. It's in the days just prior to it's when Neville Chamberlain, visits and has the, you know, the big agreement with, with Hitler and right. it shows all these diplomatic behind the scenes. And man, according to the movie war was just, you know, it was so close to being averted and so close to a certain party within Germany kind of taking power back away from Hitler. But uh, I'm not a historian. I'm not a, uh, that's, that's a lot of deep history there, but 
check it out. Munich, the edge of war. Yeah, man, I'll do that. Man and I watched that and there's so many parallels to some of what we're seeing now as the non non global diplomacy expert that, uh, that I am. I have to tell you, I mean, you know, I studied political science and right. particularly Soviet politics when I was in college. And I have to tell you, I, I do see a lot of parallels. The, the, the tactic that the English and, and Europeans took largely in World War II was appeasement. Let's give him something and hope he doesn't go any further. And I see some significant parallels in how we're approaching what Putin is doing. And appeasement did not work. In fact, the policy was called appeasement prior right. to World War II. That's right. And I see some significant alignment with the appeasement of World War II and hoping that cooler heads prevail, which they never they are not going to. I mean, there there will unquestionably be some sort of counter aggression to to end or put a fine point on the end of or the boundaries of what Putin is doing today. Mm. Um, it may not be battle, but it will certainly be a positioning of military might that says this is your new, even if Ukraine becomes part of the of Russia or becomes a puppet state like Belarus, there will be a, a significant measure of military strength shown to assure him that that is the edge of his domain. Mm. So, I want to, uh, I'm, I'm going to take one more stat or so I, I bet you're still kind of processing a lot of what you heard, but also a lot of what you shared because you were there speaking on, uh, I believe supply chain panels. You may have been on some right. tech panels. It, I was still trying to navigate through all the, all you know, three days worth of, uh, of sessions, but yeah, one, give us one more thing that really sticks out based on, on what you were being asked or the expertise you were sharing or some of those conversations you were, you were part of kind of sidebar. Yeah, I think that one of the sidebar conversations, well, a, a sidebar conversation that I had frequently was the freedom and openness of discussion that we had at this. There was nobody pulling any punches. If they felt strongly about, about Russia, they said so. If, if it, a matter-of-fact discussion around China or Russia or supply chain or world labor or whatever needed to be had, they said it and, and nobody apologized for it. And I think it was, a, it was good because I know, I could tell, we are not all uh, aligned necessarily politically, but, but we were all free to speak our mind, to say our piece and to, you know, and to know that while an intellectual uh, argument might be made, no other argument would have was made and nobody was shouted down and nobody was you know nobody was silenced or whatever you call that uh the thing that everybody hates uh not erased canceled yes Yes, that's it canceled but i think that was really powerful and then you know in addition to that it was just the breadth of topics we talked about global migration we talked about the possibility of a world minimum tax global minimum tax so that every country agrees to tax every business and individual to at least some minimum level. I presume, and again, like you said, I'm still processing this because that was way over my head, but to help alleviate some of the things that companies do to avoid taxes in high tax jurisdictions like the United States and the UK and Australia and others. So to kind of level up the global playing field, I guess would be one of the motivations there. 
mostly it's a money grab by the big countries. Okay. But yes, you, you can call it whatever you want. Because it, it does, by the way, this, this was the one takeaway I took from, the two takeaways, I should say. One, it does, by virtue of this uh, global minimum tax and at least what is proposed today, it does announce by the countries that they own you, that they own their citizens, not that their citizens are free. Wow people, you know, we had a, I had a long discussion about that at our table and we all wound up agreeing. We didn't start out agreeing, but we all wound up agreeing that that's essentially what it said. And the other is it works to the disadvantage of some of the smaller countries that woo companies to locate there. Ireland? Because Ireland, Cayman Islands, uh, though it's hard to have any sympathy for the Cayman Islands, but Mauritius, other countries that have, have, uh, have beneficial tax structures that allow these companies to avoid, legally avoid, uh, the tax structures of maybe their domicile nation or, or primary nation of operations. Um, but it does work to the significant disadvantage of hundreds of companies where it benefits dozens of countries. Wow. Okay. So folks, if you're tuned into the video version of this conversation, I apologize because the pollen is getting to me. Yes, I'm coughing. I'm drinking. I'm trying to keep it everything out of the mic. You're making me so, thirsty. Actually. Yeah, I tell you, this pollen is record breaking here in Georgia this year. All right, so Greg, I know that we're not. You know, we never planned on doing it justice in 30 minutes. I'm sure we'll talk about more uh, eureka moments and takeaways in upcoming uh, editions of the Buzz. Uh, love those. So. As we wrap here, I want to make sure folks know how to connect with you and, and well, hang on, hang on, wait a second, time out. Cause I want to go back to something you published today and oh. we're going to wrap on this uh, okay. and then we'll, then we'll get folks to connect with you. Cause this was talk about not pulling punches. And by the way, it is beautiful and a blessed thing to have a bunch of smart people in, in a venue like this and there'd be plenty of disagreement. That is that's the definition in many ways of freedom and they can all share and you can agree to disagree. Even if it's the most passionate, you know, it's really important that all, all those perspectives uh, can assemble like that. So that's a beautiful thing. But today, so every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on LinkedIn, if you connect with Greg White or follow Greg White, you will see his commentary, supply chain commentary. And folks, he lays it out there. He doesn't pull any punches. He tells you what you need to know. He tells it to you frank and direct. And sometimes it's a smack in the face. No pun intended. I'm not even going to reference any um, um, current events. But today, Greg, was all about how you were really uh, separating maybe a popular fiction when it comes to sanctions against Russia to reality. So really yeah. quick, let's, 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 if you can un, unpack that in a nutshell, because I think folks need to really understand that. Yeah. So one of the headlines recently has been, and, and thankfully this has occurred that the, the U S is, has suspended trade relations with Russia. That's not at all what has happened, but that, but it, and I'm sure that nobody meant to uh, misinform people, but what has actually happened is that we have removed the most favored nation status of Russia, which means they are subject to tariffs and restrictions that companies or that countries which are not favored trading partners of the U.S. Iran would be a, a good example of that and other um, often bad actors, but sometimes just not uh, diplomatically in favor companies or countries. I keep saying companies. So 
the perception that could have been made in some of the unspoken language in the in the article um, was that we had cut off trade with with Russia, which, which we have not done at all. Right. What we have done is we have temporarily suspended this most favored nation status, not revoked it. And I know that a lot of thought went into whether we would suspend or revoke it because I believe that constitutionally, or at least legally, once we've revoked it, we cannot reinstate it. So that may be why they suspended it. But the important thing to understand from that is we're, what this pointed out to me is how we're playing chess. Our diplomats and leaders are playing chess here in the West, or checkers, sorry, and, and how Putin is playing chess. Because he's going to recognize the temporary nature of this thing, and he's, gonna, he's going to continue to test our will to suffer. Because essentially what uh, suspending trading will do is in a number of key factors, nickel, oil, wheat, other, other products that we get on average around 10% of our imports from Russia, it will create a shortage of about 10% of our demand, which will of course, raise prices in an already inflationary space. So, you know, what, what this creates is some sacrifice on our parts. We're going to pay more. We're going to have less availability. It's going to hurt us mm. as, as consumers. And Putin has for a long time, and again, as I said, I've studied the Soviet Union, so I know, John, I know Vladimir Putin and his, his uh, strategy from, yeah, from all the way back to the 80s. So he knows that our constituency, our citizens can put pressure on the government and cause them to break, falter, lose favor for certain policies because it causes too much pain to the voter and the voters are how they get elected. In Russia, it's not the same, even though there is an election, it's a sham. And he is effectively an autocrat and dictator and, and he doesn't care what his, his constituents think or say, protest, do, or, or how well they do in their livelihoods. So it's a different world for him, and he, he's testing our resolve with this. And I think the, the upshot of this, Scott, was really, and, and I've done a couple of posts like this, preparing myself probably and, and others mentally, that we need to be prepared to sacrifice for what will, in retrospect, after we're through all of this, seem like a very, very short time, but it will be very painful in the meantime. We need to we need to prepare to sacrifice, even if it's only just prices. I'm not even talking about putting on a uniform and going to Europe or anything like that. I'm just saying endure inflation, endure shortages, you know, accept that certain things can't or won't be able to happen because we are making a principled stand against the second most dangerous world leader on the planet. Mm. And if we don't do it against the second most dangerous world leader on the planet, Vladimir Putin, we will embolden and enable the most dangerous leader on the face of the planet, Xi Jinping of China, who is, who is using Russia, as I said earlier, as a crash test dummy to discover how much subjugation, how much aggression, how much repression the rest of the world will endure to avoid conflict or sacrifice in, in their personal lives. Mm. And so that, that what I was really doing was calling on the citizenry to be prepared for and to accept that they will have to sacrifice 
to keep these two rogue, illegitimate, and dangerous leaders from attempting to overtake the world. That's the unsaid part that news organizations are not saying when they're talking about this could define the new world order, right? right? They are afraid to say it because they don't want to scare the citizenry, and it's appropriate because they're government agencies and they reach everyone. But um, I just want to reach a handful of people who reach a handful of people who can dis- discuss this and, and share it in context to say, you know, to, to do it without, without get, getting hysterical right, about yeah. it, right? And that's, that's really the purpose and essentially the, the body of what I shared in my commentary today. Well, check it out. He tackles, uh, Greg tackles some of the most challenging topics and issues and challenge and developments of our time, whether they're a little more geopolitical like today, a lot of times it's supply chain. And, yeah. and a lot of times it's, it is the real story in supply chain. In fact, we, we should, we should coin that title because Greg, you do a lot of demystifying and I enjoy that analysis. So check it out. Make sure you can, you can, and then in the link to this, uh, on this episode page, you'll have, be able to connect directly with Greg follow Greg on LinkedIn or other, other uh, social channels and stay tuned because Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you have uh, Greg White standing and delivering uh, with reliability and consistency and plenty, plenty of uh, challenging the current status quo. Okay. So Greg, beyond that, beyond LinkedIn and Twitter, Gregory S. White at Gregory S. White, anything else you'd suggest for how to folks connect with you? I think uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way. I've gotten a little bit more diligent in trying to get to all the messages that I get each day and try to respond to them. Um, If you have a question or an idea or something like that that you'd love to share, just put it in the messaging and, and, uh, you know, we can connect deeper on it. Wonderful. Wonderful. One of the best. Uh, Greg White, thanks for spending time uh, this afternoon, right on the heels of your return from the upstate of South Carolina, where it's happening. A lot of things are happening up there. Uh, it's big, amazing. It really is, and and impressive. And mm. um, and thank you for you know letting me share this. It was an honor, frankly, to to share time with these diplomats, people, frankly, way out of my league. But it does show you how supply chain has has a seat at the table, a seat at the global table, not just the corporate table, and how important and how recognized what we do. And what we do means to the world, not just to the companies that we work for or serve. Mm. Well said. I want to uh, I want to wrap on one more thing, and that is, so our dear friend at uh, Enrique Alvarez and the Vector Global Logistics team, yeah, uh, Supply Chain Now and Vector have partnered up with plenty of other folks to really find an effective and practical way of leveraging the logistics and really the supply chain community to meet real vetted needs and targeted needs in Ukraine and Poland and elsewhere. Uh, so folks, you can learn more about that initiative. Part of the best place is just uh, check out vectorgl.com. You'll see the stand with Ukraine information and links, a lot more information. They're doing a great work. Uh, yeah. and Greg, it's, it's, it is, uh, one of the best parts about this journey we're on is to rub elbows and stand with folks like that, that are, that epitomize deeds, not words and are helping folks in need. So you'll check that out. Yeah. VectorGL.com. Greg White, thank you for,
for your time here today. I look forward to the buzz coming up right around the corner. Folks, you can check that out live and bring your voice every Monday, 12 noon Eastern time uh, on Supply Chain Now, wherever you connect with the Supply Chain Now on social. Uh, On behalf of our entire team here, this is Scott Luton and Greg White signing off for now. But hey, folks, to the Russian people and the China people, Hey, continue to find your voice. You probably aren't aren't hearing us right now because the governments don't let don't let right. uh, dissenting opinion in. But it's not about the people. It's about these really bad actors, as, as Greg was was uh, pointing out, that are hurting a ton of people. Uh, but whatever you do, folks, to our listeners around the world, we're asking, imploring you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change that's needed. And on that note, we we'll see you next time right back here on Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now.